Hi, and welcome to Bread. John's Gospel features seven sayings of Jesus which begin with I am. And they serve a singular purpose, to emphatically reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is a series about these saints. They confront us with the real Jesus and they invite us to meet with him. Because the Christian faith is not primarily a doctrine to believe or a moral code to follow or even an experience to participate in. It is a person to meet. And our hope is that you would meet the living Jesus. Enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you like to have a seat? Um, I feel like I need to... I, I'm going to tell you this. I don't quite know why, but I think it's like a, a problem uh, shared is a problem halved. Uh, yesterday was the beginning of soccer season for our girls, and I went to um, the uh, opening game of our youngest daughter's soccer game. And it's a place where there's new parents and everyone's meeting each other. And for some reason, everyone looks um, wonderfully turned out at these soccer games. They're wearing their best clothes. Uh, they're trying to impress each other. Uh, but it's a bit like the first day of school, new parents, whatever. And I was on a mission to meet new friends and to say hello to everyone. Uh, and I'd been doing this for a while. Uh, and I'd been finding them, um, people were warm, and then they sort of um, seemed to be slightly awkward around me, and I didn't quite know why, uh, increasingly so. And so I'd been doing this for about half an hour of the game, and then Hannah turned up, um, and I was talking to her, and then I walked over to some other parents, and she rushed over to me and said, um, do you know that you have a um, hole in the back of your shorts that's about this big? <laughs> Um, I did not know that, uh, but it turns out that every other parent did. So I'm just sharing that with you. I'll never recover, but there we go. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with anything other than to say we are continuing our series in John's Gospel uh, on the I Am sayings of Jesus. And today we're looking at the penultimate one, the second last one, I Am the Way, the Truth, and the Life. Uh, now, we've um, covered the first four sayings, uh, the light of the world, the, bread of, the uh, bread of life, the gate, and the good shepherd, and Hannah's going to cover the fifth, the resurrection, in a couple of weeks' time. And these uh, pronouncements are all during Jesus' public ministry, these first five, the, four of, the first four of which we've covered. Uh, we're now skipping to the sixth, skipping over the fifth, for reasons that will become clearer later on, uh, to um, the last two. Uh, we're just going to do the second last one today. And this is, um, these final two sayings happen not in public. They are just reserved for Jesus' uh, closest disciples, his friends. Up to now, the action has really concerned uh, Jesus going out into uh, the people of Israel, declaring and demonstrating his identity as the Messiah, asking them to follow him, and many have. But also, as you will know, many have rejected him, and increasingly the um, tide of public opinion is turning against him. And he is now, uh, at the end of John's Gospel, kind of hunkered down with his closest friends. He's washed their feet. They are having what will turn out to be their last supper 
with him, and he is embarking on a sort of farewell discourse. This is what it's known as at the end of John's Gospel. Uh, and he is uh, just speaking to them, reassuring them. It is no longer about his efforts to convince those uh, who are outside that he is the one that they've been waiting for with his um, signs and miraculous wonders. It is now um, to those who have been following him uh, to reassure them that they are actually doing the right thing. And so this takes place in the final chapters of John's Gospel. And this morning we are looking at I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, which comes from John chapter 14, and uh, Enoch is going to come and read this to us. A round of applause for Enoch. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Thank you, Siri. Let me say that one more time. <laughs> Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to, to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen the Father has, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you will know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, yes, very good. Um, I'm stupidly tall. One of the biggest uh, questions people can have, both people inside the church and outside the church, um, one of the issues they can have with Christianity is about the exclusivity. Is Jesus really the only way to God? 
And often lurking beneath this question is actually a, another question, and it's probably this other question, the lurking beneath question, that tends to actually um, cause the majority of the um, vexing of people, which is um, what happens to those people who have never heard of Jesus when they die. And this passage with Jesus' declaration, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, is the one people often have in mind when this question is raised. Now, in the case of this passage, there's actually quite a kind of, um, heavy dose of irony to all of this, because Jesus originally spoke these words that Enoch just wrote, uh, just read, uh, not to worry people, not to make them fixate on uh, questions that keep them up in the dead of night, not to make them uh, raise issues of the eternal salvation of far-off tribes in the yet-discovered um, Amazon rainforest, but to actually do the exact opposite. He said these words to bring comfort to his people. And so if these words actually cause us consternation and worry, it may be that we aren't quite hearing them as they were first intended. We might be hearing them wrong, in fact. So in order to hear these words as they were originally intended, can I ask you to try and uh, approach this uh, with a degree of neutrality to try and leave behind any of those other questions, park the questions about exclusivity for a minute um, and what happens to people when they die and just hear Jesus' words afresh this morning. Firstly, the disciples' hearts are troubled. They have sensed that the opposition to Jesus is now almost certainly outweighing uh, the support for him. And despite their depiction as being a bit slow and not quite getting it when it comes to Jesus, they have actually seemed to put two and two together and uh, realized that actually Jesus is talking about probably leaving them. It's dawning on them that the end of Jesus' ministry is here, and it might not be the triumphant military victory that they had um, hoped for. So their hearts are troubled. Is Jesus actually going to die? And if he's going to die, what of us? Was this all a waste of time? And this is compounded by uh, what Jesus has told them in the previous chapter, from which uh, this uh, bit follows immediately. He's washed their feet, as I said earlier. They've eaten what will end up to be their final meal with him. And he's told Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. He's said that one of their number will betray him. So death and betrayal and denial are all looming, and they are troubled. And it's into this context that Jesus speaks his words of comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. You believe in God, so believe in me. Better translated, it would actually believe the imperative. Believe in God and believe in me. And Jesus' point here to these good God-fearing Jews is... You as good God-fearing Jews, you disciples, you have always known of God. You have been taught about him from an early age, that he is the one, that he is yours. Not just this, you know that this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has promised various things to you. He has promised that he will deliver you, that a Messiah will come. He hasn't just uh, revealed himself as the one true God. He said you will be vindicated. You will be set free. The, the godly good rule of God is going to come through the one that he has chosen. So Jesus here is saying, believe in the God that you already believe in, but also believe in me. Believing in me means that you believe that the promises that God has made are actually about me. 
Jesus. And if you do that, says Jesus, your hearts will no longer be troubled. Why? Why? Because what the Messiah was promised to do and what these good, God-fearing Jewish disciples would have had heard um, their stories from early childhood was that God's rule was inevitable, that his kingdom would come, and that in his kingdom everything would be set right. The world would be as it's supposed to be. No more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. A land full of all the goodness of creation is to be brought in. In short, that heaven would come. Now, heaven for the Jewish mindset was not a sort of far-off future place up in the sky with sort of eternal harp playing and sitting on clouds. Rather, it was right here and right now. This is what they were waiting for. Heaven on earth, the promised land to be restored. And it's this promise of heaven that means that the disciples need not be troubled. Verse 2, my father's house has many rooms, says Jesus. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, and you will also be where I am. You know, that the, you know the way to the place where I am going. It's heaven. This is what he's talking about. And in heaven, there are many rooms. Now, if you're like me, and now and again you look uh, on Redfin at ridiculously expensive houses that you will never, ever be able to afford... One thing may have struck you as the things have struck me is that why do they have more bathrooms than bedrooms? They always do. It's always like eight bedrooms, 12 bathrooms. I don't know. If you can explain that to me, I would like to know. Surely you want more bedrooms than bathrooms. Anyway, uh, the point about heaven and the many rooms is not really that it's a lavish place with eight bedrooms and 12 bathrooms, although of course it is a lavish, glorious, wonderful place. The point is, it's big. It's big enough for everyone. This is what Jesus is saying. There are so many rooms that all of you will fit. So you don't need to worry. So far, so straightforward. Believe God. Believe Jesus, whom God has promised. Believe Jesus is ushering in this heavenly new reality something as the good God-fearing Jews would have always believed the Messiah would do. So believe that Jesus will show the way to heaven and it will all be okay. You can have less trouble in your hearts. But now Thomas steps in, good old doubting Thomas, the saint of our age. You can't be sure about anything, can you? You've got a doubt. Don't pin your colors to any mask. Here comes Thomas, wonderful Thomas, Lord we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Oh. It's slightly confusing. Jesus has already emphatically stated that they do know exactly where he is going. And as good God-fearing Jews, even without Jesus' insistence that they know where he's going, they would always believe in the reality of heaven anyway. And so they would believe that whoever God's Messiah was, he would be the one who would usher it in. So then, what is going on with Thomas's question? Well, the key is to understanding this is to see what Jesus' response is. Jesus' response is, I am the way. Thomas is not questioning the existence of heaven. 
or the covenantal promises of his Jewish heritage. Rather, Thomas is questioning the identity of Jesus. Are you actually the one? Are you the one to go to heaven and are you the one to bring heaven here? Are you actually the one we've been waiting for? Or are you just another human that we are now worrying is going to die and leave us alone and the whole thing is going to have been a waste of our time? This is what Thomas is actually asking. And it's the only way that therefore Jesus' response makes sense. Because Jesus shifts the focus from it being about heaven to being about him. And the emphasis here is primarily on the way rather than on the life and the truth. He says he is the way to heaven precisely because he has proved himself by being both the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He, as John's gospel puts it earlier, narrates God. He shows what God is like. No one has seen God, but the one from the bosom of the Father has made him known. We no longer need to doubt what God looks like. He is Jesus. He is the full description. He has written himself into history, and when we look at him, we see the God who was hidden or the God who was only partially ever revealed. Even Moses, even Abraham, even David only saw a, a, a dimly lit picture of what God is and who he's like. But instead, Jesus takes on flesh, walks among us, and says, I'm the truth. You've seen me, you've seen God. And Jesus is the life because he has life in himself. The only person born but not created. Life for him was dependent on nothing else. Life for all of us is dependent on mothers, on God, on the universe, whatever you want to call it. Life for Jesus dependent on no one. He has life. He is life. And that means he raises Lazarus from the dead. He brings life to people. He is the fullness of life. This is what he comes to promise, to give people. Not just a one-way and uh, all-expenses-paid trip to heaven, but life here and now. So, he is truth. He is life, which means he necessarily must be the way. Philip now enters the scene with his question, or rather his statement, which is basically Thomas's, but in slightly different language. Lord, show us the Father, that will be enough for us. We're still not totally sure about you. But if you show us God, then we'll believe. I promise you. Have you ever asked yourself, if, have you ever asked God that? Just show me, show me that you're real, and I'll believe. And Jesus is going, here I am, I am real. I always have been. So let's return to our question, the question of exclusivity. Is Jesus the only way to God and heaven? There are two ways to view exclusive statements. The first is in a sort of narrow, boundaried, excluding way. It's about who's in and who's out. It's about gathering together all the good ones and excluding all the bad ones. It's about who gets to heaven and who doesn't. Unfortunately, I think for many people, they have grown up with this 
understanding of Jesus in internal life, that this is the only way and the impact, the important way to view things. But, of course, Jesus' disciples are not asking that question at all. It's the furthest thing from their mind. They're wondering about whether they're going to die. They're asking whether it's right to put their faith in Jesus. And Jesus' concern is solely to put their minds at ease. It's to comfort them with the truth. He is declaring that they are right to put their faith in him because he is the one. And therefore, they never, ever need to doubt again. The second way to view exclusive statements is to see them not necessarily as narrow and boundaried and excluding, but in a sort of emphatic, final, absolute, reassuring way. What Jesus is saying is, you could call off the search. Philip's demand, just show us the Father, is simply what I think humanity has been asking for all of time, really. Show us the Father is a short way of saying, could you just tell me the meaning of life? Can you prove that there's actually a God? Show me that there's life after death. Tell me that my life has meaning and purpose, that this isn't just all that we have, these biological beings floating around in space. Show me what it's all about. And Jesus says, all those demands, all those questions have their end in me. I am God. I am the way to heaven. You are meant for heaven, here and now, eternally and forever. I will take you there, so believe in me. So, what happens to people who never knew Jesus when they die? What happens to people who grew up in other faiths? What about people who reject Jesus? This is a good one. Because the version of Jesus they have been presented with is so corrupted that they're not really rejecting Jesus at all. They're just rejecting a horribly distorted version of him. Who's in? Who's out? We don't know. 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 We'll never know. What we do know is that heaven is huge. What we do know is that God ever wants everyone in it. God so loved the world, not God so loved a few people. God so loved the ones who are white and born in America. God didn't so love just a few people who know all the doctrines. God so loved the world, the whole universe, and every single one in it. God so loved the world that he did everything to save the whole universe. God wants everyone in. And what we also do know, if we switch that sentence around a little bit, is that everyone who comes to Jesus does come to the Father, does experience heaven. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and he is the end to all the questions. Who is God? Is there heaven? What's the meaning of life? The meaning of life, says Jesus, is put your faith in me. And in so doing, see that I am the Messiah, the one that the Jewish people have been waiting for, the one that who's going to save the universe. So can I suggest that we resist the temptation to make this about big questions that it doesn't even try or purport to answer and treat it on its own terms? 
Jesus is here to bring you comfort. That's what he wants to say to you this morning. So can we place ourselves in the story? Um, What are you troubled by? Trouble is kind of inevitable. I think uh, there's no promise that we won't experience trouble. In fact, there's promise that we will experience trouble in this life. And what Jesus wants to say is that in the midst of trouble, there are some things which you can just decide and choose and believe not to be troubled by because of what I am doing and what I have done, which we'll get on to. But there are other things that are just troublesome, but nevertheless, I am in the middle of them, comforting and restoring and reassuring you despite them. Trouble is inevitable. Uh, the word for troubled uh, in, here, in this passage has already been used three times in the gospel. So it's very intentional by John. The three other times have concerned Jesus' heart being troubled. He is troubled when he reflects on Judas' betrayal, when he considers the cross, and he's troubled when he is confronted by Lazarus' tomb. On that occasion, his trouble is uh, accompanied by outrage and fury and anger. And the point that John is making is that as Jesus demonstrates, trouble does hit us. Because the world is not as it's supposed to be, and because we are made for heaven, anything that is unheavenly will cause us consternation and grief and worry and pain. So what are you currently troubled by? I'll tell you what I'm troubled by. When uh, a couple of days ago, we got an email from one of Hannah's school friends, and uh, Hannah's kept up with her school friends, and they're very close. Uh, but um, her friend's son has just um, been diagnosed with a tumor in his leg. He's 11 years old, 11. Uh, It's 15 centimeters long. Uh, He's been rushed uh, to a specialist hospital, uh, and it's very serious. I'm troubled by that. As a parent of kids, I cannot really imagine just how much trauma they're going through. That's what I'm troubled by. What are you troubled by? It's not a competition. It's about admitting that things come against us, things worry us, things cause us consternation and grief. Jesus is here this morning to say some things you don't need to be troubled by at all. And other things I'm here right in the midst to bring comfort. Why? Well, firstly, because heaven is ours. Heaven is yours. And the reason you can know that is because the resurrection happened in history. Verse 2, Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. The first readers of the gospel would have known all about the um, cross and the resurrection, and they would have read this, reassuring each other during times of persecution knowing that Jesus died and rose again. It's on the cross that Jesus wins. He is victorious over all that holds us back and all that holds heaven back from being our reality. All suffering, all death, all sin, it's all defeated and heaven comes rushing in. So in Christian belief, the idea that God is with us 
that heaven is here is not some sort of vague hope or wish. Heaven is not ours because Jesus says it so, even. Heaven is ours because Jesus made it so. It is based in historical fact and reasoning. No historian worth their salt, whether Christian or atheist or anything else, would have any doubt that Jesus of Nazareth lived and was crucified on a Roman cross. The historical evidence for him beating death and being raised from the death to life is extremely weighty. And so all of us, first Christians, Christians now, we can be sure of the resurrection. We can be as certain as we can be of anything in the world that death has been defeated and that heaven's here. So what Jesus is reassuring us with and the first Christians with are historically based evidence. He says, look back to those three days between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Yes, I left, but I didn't leave for long. I went to hell to destroy it all so that you could go free and that you could enjoy all the riches of the life that you were made for. So he's on your side. And secondly, he comforts us because heaven is a wonderful future hope. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me and you also will be where I am. Now, I know for some people, um, they have grown up with the idea that a future heaven is everything. That's all that matters. That um, really Christianity is just about getting to heaven and that's it. And so we tick that box and then we go about merrily on our lives and we feel a bit sorry for those people who haven't ticked the box. Now, this is not a very good uh, way to live and it's not very accurate to the New Testament material at all, but we'll come on to it in a minute. However... I think all of us could probably do from time to time of living in the reality of a future, beautiful, glorious heaven. It's all going to be okay. My, our friends whose son has just been diagnosed with this terrible thing, I don't want to be trite and I don't want to pat it off because we need to acknowledge the suffering they're going through but for those of us who believe this life is, a, is but a moment compared to the glorious wonder of everything being unbelievable and beautiful in heaven forever and ever and ever and when you know that you can live through life not denying the troubles, not, not, um, not letting the troubles affect you, but knowing that actually, in the end, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. No more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness, no death, no shame, no deceit. Every tear wiped from our eyes. No more mourning, no more darkness, just only beautiful, glorious light. Without the hope of heaven... This world becomes very, very, very difficult indeed. It becomes very important. It weighs too heavily on us because this is everything. Uh, the gospel songs sung by those who had been taken from their homeland to work here as slaves, those aren't just nice songs 
that slaves sang to each other to keep their spirits up. These are songs of deliverance. And they're songs of belief, of faith, and extraordinary hope. Not necessarily for deliverance now, but for, at some point, glory and joy in heaven. But finally, heaven is not just future. It's right here, right now, in the present. And this, particularly for those who grew up with all that matters is what happens when you die, is the most important thing I'm going to say. I will ask the Father, says Jesus. He will give you another advocate to help you. And who will be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Jesus says, you will do greater things than even I. Now, by greater things, he does not mean more things, like numerically greater, a larger number of things. Jesus only did a few things, actually, if we count them. Christians can do more things than that. We've had more time to do it. It's also not about greater things as in more extreme. I don't think you get more extreme than raising Lazarus from the dead. I don't think you get more extreme than rising from the dead yourself. He's not saying greater things in that sense. He is saying greater things because you're doing them. They are greater because Jesus has returned to his Father and you're doing them because the Spirit has been poured out on you. That's what makes them greater, that you can heal the sick, that you can deliver those from demonic oppression, that you can raise the dead. These are the greater things. You can do all the things of Jesus because the Spirit has been poured out. And the Spirit has been poured out because heaven is here, right here, right now. Not in full, obviously, but in part. And we taste it. And the point here, therefore, is Jesus is calling us to take our troubles and place them in the light of who he is and what he's done. I have hope that I can pray for healing for my friend's son. Last week, a mother brought her son, and I'm going to be careful about just not uh, um, uh, remaining anonymous about this, but uh, she had felt like God had said to her, come to, the serv- come to this service. She drove up from um, uh, away away because they believe in healing here. And they'll pray for your son. Because her son had had a brain tumor. He was an MBA. He um, uh, was uh, uh, a doctor. And um, he'd had a stroke. He's a young guy. Uh, He'd recovered from the stroke, but his memory is failing. No short-term and long-term memory. And he has a residency here. She'd prayed that he would recover. And that he is... uh, that the um, tumor is not uh, malign, but he has this problem with memory. And this is what they were praying for. She has faith because her prayers were answered and Jesus was true to what he, was, he said he would do. And he, she is asking us to pray for more. And her faith is extraordinary. I found it very moving. Don't you want to be part 
of a faith that actually makes a tangible difference in this world where we can pray in faith for extraordinary things of heaven to happen. That we don't just have to go, this is our lot in life, and we'll just wait until we die. But actually, lives can be restored and changed and renewed. This is what Jesus is saying. The Spirit is here to help you, to fill you. So what are you troubled about? What are you troubled about? Would you like to bring it to Jesus? Do you need to be troubled anymore? Amen. Amen. Let's sing a song.